Hello, I'm Cathy Renson-Brink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 8th edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the news last week that The Exact Opposite of OK by Laura Stephen won the inaugural Comedy Women in Print Prize. In this edition, we'll be talking to David Nichols about his new book, Sweet Sorrow, and to Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivnan, who will take us through the big books of July. And we'll be playing out with an audiobook extract of Expectation by Anna Hope. They would like to pause time. Just here. Just now. We'll also be talking to this month's book doctors and asking what they'd select for our three readers who are eager for recommendations. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivnan from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And with me, as he is every month, is The Bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hi, Cathy. Alice, such a pleasure to have you on the programme again. Um, What's your top pick for July? Well, very difficult decision, Cathy. Three very strong top picks for July. But I'm going to start with the wonderful David Nichols. Ah, We're interviewing him later on in the programme. Oh, are we? He's wonderful, a wonderful writer. And I loved his latest book. Sweet Sorrow. It's narrated by a guy called Charlie Lewis, who's in his 30s, and he's looking back at his 16-year-old self and the summer of 1997. And that year is very memorable for lots of people, isn't it? We've had new Labour, Tony Blair coming to power, Britpop, the death of Princess Diana. But Charlie's world is a bit smaller than that. He's just left school, secondary school, where he's messed up his exams. And we discover his parents' marriage has disintegrated and he's living at home with his dad. Uh, He doesn't really have any prospects apart from working part-time in a garage selling petrol. And the summer is sort of stretching ahead of him with nothing much to do. And then all of a sudden he meets Fran and his life just completely changes. She is part of a theatre collective, which is run by these two very over-enthusiastic Oxford graduates who want to bring Shakespeare to the masses. Um, And they're putting on uh, this production of Romeo and Juliet. And Charlie has no time for Shakespeare, really, um, but he wants to spend time with Fran. So he doesn't really have any choice. If he wants to hang around with her, he needs to join in with this Shakespeare production. Now, David Nichols always writes about love, I think, um, and he writes about it so beautifully and so poignantly, and it just rings really true all the time. Um, This is, interestingly, the first time he's chosen to write about adolescent love and the kind of sort of life-changing effect um, that can have on a person. He does write about the brief, blinding explosion of first love, but he also writes about Charlie's life um, so brilliantly. He has these mates with whom he just indulges this sort of really savagely funny banter. And we also learn more about Charlie's father, who, although it's not made explicit, he's kind of sinking into a depression. And it's also really powerfully about, because this summer changes Charlie's life in quite a subtle way by exposing him to a culture, art, if you like, with a capital A, that he wouldn't have come across Mm. otherwise. 
So I just think it's a really beautiful love story. He really captures the kind of angst and awkwardness of first love and then the repercussions that it can have down the years. I mean, he's a huge superstar, David Nichols. Pretty much everyone um, will have read One Day, which has sold 1.7 million copies in the UK today and was a Hollywood film. And then his previous novel, 2014, Us, that was long-listed for the Man mm-hmm. Booker Prize. So I've no doubt that this will be one of the books of the summer. Mm-hmm. And it's perfect summer reading, isn't it? Yeah, I read it on a, a long sunny day and just yes. oh it's just so yes. joyful really yeah yeah it's wonderful he's a wonderful writer mm-hmm. and what else have you got for us well speaking of wonderful writers I'm also going to talk about Deborah Mogok who I just love I've long been a fan of hers she's quite a difficult writer to categorize because I think I'm right in saying she's written 17 novels mm. and they've sort of ranged from historical to sort of almost thrillers um But she's really, really well known for her novel, which was turned into the Marigold Hotel Mm -hmm. film about sort of people getting older and misbehaving in India. This is also about older people. It's a hilarious comic novel um, about ageing, sibling rivalry and a long buried family secret. And it starts with um, a sort of point of view of these two children who are adults, Robert and Phoebe, 62 and 60 respectively. And their elderly um, father, who's a widower, needs a carer. Robert and Phoebe are obviously very keen to get their own lives back. So they're delighted when they find this carer, Mandy, who's completely sort of the polar opposite to their father she's this sort of bulky chatty woman from Solihull and she gets on like a house on fire with their father to the point where the siblings start to wonder if they're getting on slightly too well and there's a point where they discover that their father's papers have been kind of moved around and they start to wonder Mm. if Mandy has a hidden agenda and I'm going to stop there on the plot because there's a midpoint twist which changes everything (laughs) and you have got I love that in a novel when an author suddenly takes you in a direction you weren't expecting um but this she's so pin sharp on the relationship between um these sort of late middle-aged siblings and the fact that they just regress when they're together to how they were <laughs> when they're children and they're desperate for their father's sort of attention um it's so deftly plotted i mean i've sort of stopped before the halfway but you know it rattles along and every sentence is working really really hard Mm -hmm. to kind of um, propel the plot and I think my theory is that because she's also um, BAFTA nominated screenwriter she knows you know how to get through a scene Mm. and just keep you turning the pages and I have to say I read this nearly in one sitting Mm -hmm. I was just so entranced and it's it's really lovely I mean we we make a big um, fuss of of debutante authors which is right but every so often it's nice to sit down and relax with an author who's been writing you know 17 books as I mentioned and just knows exactly what they are doing yeah you're always feeling good hands with her don't you you feel kind of relaxed and you can just let this author take you and you don't have to worry that something awful is going to happen at the end you'll hate the ending Mm -hmm. and she's just wonderful she is unashamedly a comic writer and I think that's really important because good comic writing is so hard to do and I think it doesn't always get the attention and the sort of you know people don't appreciate just how hard it is Mm -hmm. and it's sort of seen as oh if you write a funny novel it's in some way silly or or you know not important um but as ever she sort of weaves in the pathos with Mm. the humor and it's just it's terrific Mm -hmm. it's really good Uh, and the last book i wanted to talk to you about it's not a debut it's her third novel but her previous two novels were both historical fiction and this is um contemporary her name is anna hope and um the novel is expectation and i really enjoyed 
this one. It's basically about the gulf, which we are all familiar with, being in our forties, <laughs> um, of uh, expect- thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of expectation and how, when you're in your twenties, you think your life will turn out, mm-hmm. and then how it actually does. We first meet the three young women. They're in their late twenties in two thousand and four. They're all sharing a house in East London, and then over the course of the novel, we move through to two thousand and eighteen. And when it starts, obviously they're they're incredibly free. None of them have children. They don't obviously really appreciate how free they are. They can kind of do what they mm. like, and they have no ties. And then, obviously, as we all know, that sort of lovely suspension of real life, as it were, doesn't continue. And there's three sort of um, major themes. These women have um, issues with their careers. One of them um, is trying to be an actress and has gone to a very prestigious drama school. And there's quite a, a funny flashback where she meets her agent and or acquires an agent and the agent says, well, we won't put you up to commercials on this. You know, they won't be shown in the US. And there's sort of all this expectation around her. And then fast forward and, you know, she's struggling to get sort of theatre shows in pubs and even commercials. And I believe the author herself used to be an actress. So there's a real kind of pithy insight into that whole, frankly, soul-destroying process of auditioning. And then uh, another woman um, has a baby quite early on. And I thought this was particularly good, describing how this character is sort of trapped in her house with a newborn that really resonated with me and how your old life is is just your life has changed so much Mm -hmm. you can't even really remember what it used to be like and you've got this tiny demanding screaming baby and then the third woman has issues sort of trying to get pregnant with IVF the novel sort of unfolds with these women's lives kind of threading in and out um, with each other and there's you know all sorts of other things happen but it's a really very insightful read I thought and it, it particularly taps in with the conversation that seems to be happening at the moment about what it means to live a meaningful life mm-hmm. and to be fulfilled and if you're not going to be you know a Hollywood um, movie star or you know a Man Booker Prize winning writer or whatever what are you going to do and how are you going to kind of reconcile mm-hmm. the person you end up with with the person that you thought you were going to be mm. so big question for everyone thank you so much alice and tom what's happening in non-fiction this month well probably the biggest book of the month the biggest release is three women um, by lisa tadeo and who else to talk about women's desire which is what the book is about than me <laughs> <laughs> um, lisa tadeo is american um and she basically followed three american women for about a decade about their sex lives, but it's not really about their sex lives per se. It's about desire, longing, and how that reflects upon their everyday life. It's really fascinating. One of the funny things is that she at first wanted to do this about men, but she found that all men's desires sort of are the same, (laughs) and they all bleed together, and it's just so boring. In her prologue, she says, in some cases, this is about men. In some cases, there was prolonged courting. Sometimes the courting was closer to grooming, but mostly the stories ended up in a stammering pulses of orgasm. And whereas the man's throttle died in the closing salvo of the orgasm, I found that women's was often just beginning. And I, I think probably we've not said orgasm twice on this podcast yet, but here we go. Uh, <laughs> is this a competition or something? Yeah. Is it? But it's just fascinating, and the whole thing is fascinating. Basically, She follows three women, two from sort of the Midwest, one from North Dakota, one from Indiana, one from the East Coast, and just goes through their lives and their various difficulties and their triumphs, I guess, in their sexual lives. Mm. 
I'm desperate to read this book. It's the book in the world that I haven't read that I most want to read because everybody is talking about it. So I'm definitely being worked up to a fever pitch of anticipation. Yeah. I'm going to go and buy it at the train station later <laughs> you, you on. You desire to read it. I am, um, yeah. It is quite fascinating. And I think the biggest thing is how she makes the whole thing funny and part of everyone's lives, that your sexuality is comes out in the everyday in, in some permutations. And I think she got sort of lucky in the three women she chose because they all had very compelling stories. Maggie, the one from North Dakota, her first sexual relationship was when she was 17 with her 23-year-old teacher. Mm-hmm. A few years later, when she is in her 20s, she decided to go to the police about him because he was named the Teacher of the Year in North Dakota. Eventually, there was a long trial from him. In ways that will shock you, he was found not guilty and continues to teach to this day. And there was really a bad ramifications for her family, mm-hmm. which I won't go to now because it's a sort of spoiler, but it's a really harrowing story. As you said, Kathy, this has been everywhere. People have been talking about it. One of the criticisms about it is that it's only these three white women mm-hmm. of broadly similar uh, backgrounds. But to that, I say, well, that's the story. It's three women. It's not called 300 women. It's not called 3,000 women. She took this deep dive into these people's lives, and we should be happy for it because it's such a great book. Well, and the way that publishing works, now that everybody knows people are really interested in muddy stories about muddy female desire, there'll be plenty of opportunities for other people to write more books about other women and their relationships with desire. Well, thank you for that. Um, a couple of exciting YA publications, Tom, yeah, this month. I think we don't talk about YA all that much when we're here, but one is from Kittaval. Uh, it's called Becoming Dinah. This is one of the first books in this new series. It's called the Bellatrix series, which is feminist young adult retellings of classic books. Kieran Millwood Hoggrave did The Deathless Girls, which is a retelling of Dracula, and now this, Become a Dinah, is a retelling of Moby Dick, which, if there's any book that needed a feminist retelling. But anyway, this is a really clever reimagining. It's set in present day. There's no water involved at all. It, Dinah is who will become Ishmael, um, which is slightly a spoiler, but there you go, is a 17-year-old mixed-race girl living in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the original Moby Dick started. And she has to drive this VW camper van south with Ahab, who is the head of this weird commune that she lives with. And he's left his prosthetic leg in another camper van, which is painted white. And the color is called whale white. So they are chasing a white whale of some sort. Um, but really, it's just Dinah's voyage of discovery about herself, uh, what it means to be a 17-year-old girl, 17-year-old queer girl living in America today. It's really beautifully done, really funny. The Ahab character is both really funny and he's really cantankerous, but quite scary at some time. Mm-hmm. It's so well done, so clever. Great. And what else? There's Nikesh Shukla's The Boxer. Another quite clever story. The Boxer is uh, the titular character, Sonny, an Asian kid living in Bristol, who is the subject of a racist attack. Sadly, it's quite harrowing, but also very believable. So what he does is take up boxing to try to kind of Uh, look into himself and kind of look after himself better. The book is structured in 10 chapters, each of which are the 10 rounds of the first amateur boxing match he's taking. And it's about, again, like becoming Dino Voyage self-discovery. The clever thing is he's boxing against his best friend, Kier, who's a white kid who is becoming radicalized by far-right supremacists. There's a big 
far-right rally coming up in Bristol in the story. And it's about the battle of that, and it's about how to kind of claim your place in the world. It's really lovely done. It's also quite refreshing that someone being radicalized is not a person of color, but, you know, the white kids. Mm -hmm. And the white people are scarier than, you know, the kind of baddies that we have in sort of a lot of uh, fiction and um, certainly in films. And, you know, without being so worthy, this is kind of clearly aimed at teenage boys who we know from the industry don't really read as much as, well, certainly not as much as teenage girls, and they should be encouraged to read more. And I think this is a story that might be their way in. Yeah, absolutely. How um, difficult is it, as in disturbing? Can I read it to my nine-year-old son, do you think? Or is it a bit I, too I think scary? so, yeah. 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 One thing that struck me about reading both of these books is that how sophisticated YA is now. Books that are essentially about identity and politics and finding your way in the world, I guess. But I guess that's what a lot of kids are thinking about now at a very early age or far earlier than maybe we did back mm-hmm. back in the mists of time. I think that's absolutely right. Thinking back to our YA book prize, the mm. books there for the most part are very issue-based, yeah, very yeah. identity-based and kind of have been for a couple of years, I'd say, but particularly strongly this year. Yeah, um, yeah it, it sort of seems to feel... That's where a lot of the teenage debate yeah. is happening. Yeah. yeah, It's a change, isn't it? I've been thinking about this about my own reading habits. So I read a lot for sort of comfort and escape. And if I'm reading for comfort and escape, then I tend to read stuff that was published, you know, possibly even a couple of hundred years ago. You know, I read Jane Austen or I read Agatha Christie or George Hare or whatever. So if I'm reading for comfort and escape, I read old stuff. If I'm reading contemporary stuff, I tend to want, I want issues. I want, I want the, the gritty things. And I wonder whether it's a bit, the whole thing with YA, isn't it? It's if you want comfort and escape, you can read... Little Women, or, you, know, yeah. you know, there's plenty of like really lovely novels that you could escape to for an afternoon if you're a teenager. You know, you read I Catch the Castle or something. But what there isn't is books written from perspectives other than kind of like poor but posh white kids yeah. um, that are saying anything else about the world. So it's great to see that some of them are coming into existence. And I would say that these books, though they're YA books, they are perfect for adults as well, I mm-hmm. would say, which I suppose is the key to the best YA or the best children's book in general yeah universal appeal yeah that was so great thank you very much such interesting conversation about all the books I've read and still yet more that I want to read so thank you both so much for coming in thank you and now we're delighted to be joined by David Nichols. How well I remember giggling over Starter for 10 back when I was a bookseller in 2004 and then crying over one day in 2009 David's novels have been translated into 40 languages and he's sold over 8 million copies worldwide. He's also written lots for TV, including a series of Cold Feet, and most recently, Patrick Melrose, which he adapted from Edward St Albans' novels. He's here today to talk to us about Sweet Sorrow, a poignant, funny book about first love and Shakespeare. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. What does it feel like to know that 8 million copies of your books are sort of being read yeah, worldwide? that does seem strange, doesn't it? I mean, it's strange because it's a wonderful number. I, it doesn't make me any calmer, you know. I, <laughs> I, feel, I feel nervous every time. It's always frightening, especially because I've, I've always wanted the books to be different from each other, different worlds and different mm-hmm. tones and different structures. And, and so there's a, there's a certain risk it feels like in in every publication it's wonderful I've been very lucky but I I still get very nervous it certainly does seem to be the case that for writers for novelists uh, having a success doesn't make writing easier does it no I mean certainly after one day I was completely paralyzed
publicised for a long time, not just because I was spending so much time publicising it around the world, but because suddenly there was this expectation which didn't exist before one day. You know, no one was waiting for one day. The book before the understudy had actually had not built on Start of a Ten. It had actually not sold as many copies, and even though I thought it was a much better book. So one day was very easy to write, not easy to write, but very enjoyable to write for that reason. And then there was a year where I tried and I just banged my head against a wall and tried kind of free form writing and making it up as I went along and and uh, trying to get a thousand words down even if I didn't know what the story was mm-hmm. a sort of weird kind of stream of consciousness writing that was just terrible really and nothing much came out of it it took me a year to write about 30,000 words which I then abandoned mm-hmm. so I'm very careful to always follow this up by saying that I was very 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 lucky to be in that situation and if that's the worst thing that ever happens to you as a writer, then that's wonderful. But um, it did make me quite self-conscious because suddenly you're thinking, well, I'm, uh, is my readership young? Is it old? Is it male? Is it female? Do they want another love story? Should I foil those expectations and write something very dark or very different? And none of that occurred to me when I was writing one day. Now, with this book, I feel a little calmer. I feel I, I love Us, the last book, and I... I feel a little freer to write books that are different each time, but nevertheless sort of share a certain DNA. And tell us about Sweet Sorrow. What what were the first ingredients of it? How did it come to you? Well, I wanted to write a coming-of-age story, but I'd already done it, and I sort of thought, well, I I blew that with Start of a Ten, really. You know, a lot of first novels are coming-of-age novels, often quite autobiographical. How can I explore youth, being young again? And, And so I decided that I wanted to write a memory book, you know, someone writing back with a certain distance. And there's a great tradition of that with coming-of-age mm. novels, with novels like, I thought about novels like Le Grand Moon or uh, Philip Roth's novella Goodbye Columbus, you know, stories that are infused with a kind of a nostalgia that isn't necessarily dewy-eyed, that's quite realistic and tough. And so I thought I would write a novella, a 50,000-word love story um, set over the course of a summer, someone looking back, a sort of go-between structure. And um, as I started to make notes, it transformed into something else, you know, it, it, uh, as you'd expect. it. I, I had a, a file, a very baggy file, into which I threw scraps and ideas and character sketches and that little bits of dialogue and little structural ideas. And then I took a time off to write Patrick Melrose, and then I went back to this big sack of loose writing and pulled out the things that seemed interesting to me. I'd also wanted to write about theatre but in the right way. You know, I think it's quite a hard world to write about from the inside. It can be quite off-putting. It can seem quite uh, pretentious and precious. And I wanted to have fun with it, not to be disrespectful, but to write from an outsider's point of view. And that, <laughs> that story idea, the idea of someone acting against their will, about uh, someone sort of almost drafted into a production that they didn't want to be part of and initially finding it ridiculous, that seemed like a, a good source of comedy. And the other strand, the the strand about um, Charlie and his father, that very much originated in the writing. I knew that his parents would be divorcing, breaking up while the action took place. But that stuff is the stuff that took me by surprise. That wasn't part of the plan. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more about Charlie and his dilemma, because you do feel very sorry for him, because he's having to father his father, really, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, often characters come out of opposition to previous things that you've written, and In Start of a Ten, Brian Jackson is a very kind of earnest, sort of 
A plus student. He's actually not particularly intelligent in terms of how he lives his life, but he's very dedicated to the idea of intelligence and knowledge. And I wanted to write about someone who wasn't like that at all, who who feels rather invisible, rather lost, rather out of touch, and who finds himself stuck in a in a in a situation. Uh, that he's desperate to escape without really having the means to escape or the confidence to escape. So Charlie's father has been declared bankrupt and his wife has had an affair and he's caught, he's in the middle of a terrible depression that no one has identified as depression. And Charlie suddenly finds himself facing this long, claustrophobic summer, you know, watching TV with the curtains drawn, Mm. a long, melancholy, lonely summer Mm -hmm. that he's desperate to escape. And at the beginning of the novel, he's desperate to flee his family to get away from his dad. But as events develop, he he realizes he's going to have to find another way of dealing with this role of carer. You know, initially, he's a carer who doesn't care. He's a carer who just wants to flee. Uh, But by the end of the novel, hopefully he's found another way of dealing with his father's malaise and a more sympathetic, open-hearted way of behaving living with each other Mm -hmm. there's a recurring line a sort of pretentious line that the the production's movement director comes up with the idea that acting will teach them another way to move through the world and that's what charlie's looking for a way to move through the world that is a little freer of the angst and anxiety he feels and there's quite a lot about being a man isn't there because his relationship with his friends is quite yeah. interesting very sort of boisterous the the young male of the species um i really loved the bit because you don't get a lot of darts in literature no um I, tell <laughs> us about agincourt agincourt <laughs> is a game we used to play i mean it's not stuffed full of autobiography this book but we did i don't know what we were thinking play this stupid game where we would be in someone's back garden we'd all have to pick a spot on the lawn and then throw tungsten-tipped darts up into the air. (laughs) And the object of the game was not to move, not to flinch, obviously not to look up, but not to run away. And I remember playing it once with with Stephen Bentley next door and a dart landed right in the top of his head and was there sticking vertically out of his skull. And we thought this was the funniest thing. Once we realised he wasn't seriously injured almost the funniest thing we'd ever seen and there was a lot of that kind of thing you know we were always throwing each other into rivers and getting each other drunk and I for a long time felt very nostalgic about this not so much the personal injury but the kind of (laughs) the intensity of that friendship and then as I become a parent myself I look back and I'm I I feel a bit more rueful about it. I'm actually slightly horrified by the way we used to be with each other as boys, the aggression of it. Because in some cases, it was was a weird, twisted kind of love. It was born out of great affection. But there were definitely other cases where it was a kind of bullying, really. Mm -hmm. And the names we called each other and the way we behaved with each other, there was was definitely an, an edge to a lot of it. And I feel very sad about that, that that's sort of my abiding memories of school was this extremely intense vicious name calling mm-hmm. i can't remember being called david for 5 years really it was it was pretty tough and when i went to sixth form college i i f- sort of i think for the first time saw a way out of that a way out of that kind of well again that language that pattern of behavior which is why in many ways the leap from school to sixth form the summer that this novel deals with was almost a, as big a leap for me as um 
the leap into university, which was the subject of my first book. Mm-hmm. And Charlie sort of leaps into Fran, doesn't he? Yeah, I wanted to write a really classic summer love story. The obvious thing to do when you're writing a love story against the background of Romeo and Juliet is to write a version of Romeo and Juliet, you know, to have the real-life <laughs> events just miraculously mimic the events of the play. So what are the barriers? What makes Charlie a Montague and, and, and Fran a Capulet? Well, I, I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to actually make it pretty mutual, pretty fond, pretty warm and caring between them. And I suppose if there is a barrier between them, it's one of class and education that Fran doesn't feel self-conscious about being in a play or reciting Shakespeare. Or, you know, she's not pretentious, but she has grown up in a stable middle-class family, which is very aspirational, and there are lots of books around, and she shares her parents' taste in music, and, and Charlie hasn't had that experience, and is both intrigued by it and also a little excluded by it. I think I've written quite a lot about you know how class and education and culture all get tangled up, and... I feel very passionate about books and films and plays and music and at the same time recognise that sometimes they can be used as a as a bit of a weapon, as a stick to beat people with and I, I, I wanted to get some of that ambiguity in. I very much enjoyed the, you know, sort of the well-meaning adults bringing Shakespeare to people. But the yeah. reason why Charlie ends up doing the Shakespeare is because he—it's the only way he can spend time with the yeah. girl that he likes. There's no other way. It's a sort of—it's a terrible deal he has to make. You know, he has to do the trust games if he wants to see. Her. <laughs> it's a brilliant title, I thought. Again, a yeah, title that has immediate I... appeal, but then continues to resonate. Um, as you read the book, and I'm still thinking about it. When in the process did the title come to you? I wish I'd made it up. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, it's kind of um, well chosen, but it's uh, it's a it's a lovely contrast, isn't it? And I was slightly shy of it, I think, because it had the word sweet in, and I didn't want to make it sound as if there was anything saccharine about mm. the love story. But it does sort of summon up the tone, really. So I I tested it out, and it got a good response. And it it now, of course, it seems to me the only title but I'm not particularly good at titles you know Start of Ten was called Knowledge for a long time mm-hmm. and One Day was called St. Swithin's Day for a long time and you know I, I it isn't um, Us was incredibly hard to name mm-hmm. it was called Last Summer for a long time and then just Summer and then all kinds of different uninspiring titles but Sweet Sorrow I realised quite early on was the, the one that fitted and it does is, is that poignant quality isn't it I, when, yeah. I think my favourite books are poignant which is to be sort of sad and sweet and funny at the same time I suppose yes I mean I think if you put it the word Sweet Sorrow in their context parting is such sweet sorrow that I would say goodnight until tis morrow it's about finding pleasure in sadness mm-hmm. and pleasure in sadness is the definition of melancholy I, I wanted it to be a a melancholy book, not a depressing book or a grim book or a melodramatic book, but for it to have the feel of, um, you know, the leaves turning on the trees and the summer coming to an end and the nights closing in and a sense of loss, of missed opportunities, of sadness, as well as all the kind of the fun and frivolity and lightness and brightness of new friendship and falling in love. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a book that's going to be seen on sun loungers all over the world. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Goodness, I don't know. <laughs> but you write books, you do lots of other work, you write for TV and you also yeah. adapt for other people. How do you divide up your time? Well, unfortunately, that's not always under my control. Sometimes a green light will go and you're both delighted that the project is happening and 
a little bit horrified at the workload. So mm-hmm. while I'm promoting Sweet Sorrow, I'm simultaneously working on the scripts of Us, the previous novel, which we're adapting for the BBC. So in between book events, I get script notes. And um, it's it's not ideal, but I'm very lucky to be in that situation. The last three or four years have been a bit much. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very tired and I'd love a bit of a break. So once Us has finished filming, which will be in the autumn, uh, and once I've finished promoting the book, I'm going to try and take a deep breath and, and clear my head because I'd love to write more fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Sweet Sorrow would have been uh, around much earlier if Patrick Melrose hadn't also mm-hmm. been greenlit. I really did have to put it on hold for a, for a year and a half while that took over. Mm-hmm. But um, I love writing fiction. It's the thing that I, certainly when I'm stuck in a four-hour script meeting, it's the thing I long to do. And um, I'm going to try and clear the decks and clear my head and and not go straight into another big TV project. Well, good luck with that. And I will very much look forward to your next novel whilst not wanting to put you under any (laughs) pressure at all. No, I I think a certain amount of pressure is is very helpful. (laughs) Um, But thank you. Thank you very much. And now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel to quiz the book doctors. Thanks, Cathy, and welcome to our Book Doctors slot, where we get two of our best indies to give recommendations to readers who are after tips for their next book. Now, our indies today are Joe Haygate from The Legends, that is Pages of Hackney, and Will Smith from Sam Reed Books in Grasmere. So hello to both of you. Hello. 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 Will, let me talk to you first. For me, a bookshop in the Lake District sounds just about perfect. I've been in the shop a few times. That was me with the muddy boots. Um <laughs> Is working there as good as it sounds? Most of the time it really <laughs> is, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely place to be because, you know, who wouldn't want to work in a bookshop in the surrounds of the Lake District? Yeah, the not most of the time is when the wind's howling and the Lake District rain is bashing down, is it? Yes, when we have yeah. the odd ferocious day of rain, it can be more challenging um, just on keeping everyone's spirits up more than anything else. Yeah, and I mean, it's an old, old bookshop, isn't it, Sam Reed? Yeah, so it's, Sam Reed set it up in 1887, and it's been trading from the same premises from about 1892. So uh, we have all these people who come back year after year who uh, will say that you know they've been visiting every year since 1943. Oh, isn't that fantastic? I was assuming, yeah, it wasn't from 1892. That would be a very old person. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, not quite. Yeah, and I mean, and Grasmere, of course, um, Wordsworth it comes to mind. Yeah, it's still incredibly popular. People coming in for Dorothy and William's work and the whole of the kind of romantic circle, really, yeah. Uh, nice, nice connection. And Joe, yeah, I mean, Pages Hackney really is a legend, isn't it? Yeah, how long have you been there and, and when did it start? Yeah, so we've been there for nearly 11 years. It was opened in 2008. And yeah, I've been managing the shop for five of those. Um, the owner is Eleanor and and my colleague is Ollie. And as the name implies, you know, it's not your standard sort of middle of the country, nice sort of high street type indie. You specialise in, in particular areas? Yeah, we sort of like unofficially um, have ended up just trying to really represent the community of Hackney and the books that we stock. So we're, you know, stocking a lot of books by people that have generally been underrepresented in, in publishing. And it's something that's really important to us to sort of really reflect the community that um, that we're in. Yeah. So. I remember reading in the bookstore that um, you had a little announcement uh, yeah. back in May. There is a new Pages. Just two months. 
months ago, we um, opened a new bookshop and it's just off Brick Lane and it's called Pages Cheshire Street. And we stock books by women, trans and gender diverse writers only. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's really exciting. We've been open just two months, but in that time we've run sort of six sold out events already. Oh, fantastic. And yeah, we've just had loads of positive feedback from people. And we're planning collaborations with Virago Press for a series of events in the autumn. So, yeah, there's loads of exciting stuff. Yeah, good stuff. So if people want to find that, Cheshire Street is where? So, it's yeah, it's just off Brick Lane. It's in Shoreditch. Oh, OK. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm coming up to Shoreditch oh, uh, later on today, so I'll pop in. Oh, do. Please do. So, well, that's great. Now we know something about where you're both coming from. So let's get on to getting some recommendations. I'll start with you, Will. And our first person is Caroline, who's a teacher from Newcastle. Last book she read was Heartland by Nathan Filer, uh, which, very kindly, she read after hearing him on our podcast last month. So we like that. She normally reads novels but branched out into nonfiction lately. She's particularly looking for more true stories uh, written by doctors or nurses. Okay, so my first suggestion would be Christy Watson's The Language of Kindness. Yeah. Um, in paperback with Vintage now. Just because it's it's such a kind of revelatory memoir on um, spending two decades as a nurse and thinking about the complexity of, of what nursing entails, really, about how and why people enter it, uh, about how nursing is as much about kind of art and ethics and politics and philosophy as it is about the science of it. So it's a really interesting, readable book, and I think it comes from that, that deep experience that uh, Caroline was after. And I would also add Gavin Francis, um, any, anything by Gavin Francis, really, although Adventures in Human Being is the one that stands out for us, really. OK, I don't know Gavin Francis. Tell, tell me a bit more about that one. So he's an Edinburgh GP uh, and a writer, and he writes studies of the human body, but that really reflect on his experiences as a GP and the cases and the patients he sees. So he's quite a kind of analytical thinker, but who is also reflecting on personal experience and the kinds of people he meets in his everyday life oh well that's a good shout and that's new to us i'm i'm now looking over to to kathy to see if she's showing recognition yeah, oh no i'm getting i'm getting nothing from her <laughs> nothing it's terrible i'm actually so, big on these medical books so yeah. it's very difficult for me to keep my mouth shut <laughs> <laughs> So, Joe, what were you going to suggest for Well, I actually had um, The Language of Kindness as well. Oh, um, no. So, yeah, a bit of a <laughs> duplication there. But, yeah, it is such a good book. I think, you know, there's just so many books out there written by doctors and just not that many by nurses. And it, it does feel like nursing is just really undervalued as a profession. You just sort of really get a sense of how every day has really felt intensely for her as, as a nurse. And, and also the fact that, you know, at one time in our lives, we'll all be nursed or we will all be nurses. So in a way, it's a, a universal experience that a lot of people are just kind of in denial about. And yeah, so that the book shows that like kindness is a really important thing. And, um, and each story she tells is a, is a really brilliant example of that. The other one I was going to suggest is um, Tell Me the Planets by Ben Platts-Mills. It came out in paperback in February, and Ben isn't actually a doctor, but he works for Headway East, which is a charity that supports um, survivors of brain injury. Um, and the book tells stories of, sort of some of the members of the charity and how they came there, and sort of really allows us to see the world through their eyes. And I, I would say that the very fact that Ben isn't a doctor is what makes the book so brilliant, because it's kind of a result of many years of like friendship and collaboration with the survivors so sort of rather than seeing them as a patient 
as a doctor would. He sort of has shared the emotional impact on their lives and he presents the the brain injury as like a sort of narrative event, like a shift in identity for them and sees the injury kind of in the context of their whole life. The book sort of really like focuses on his friendship with Matthew who has had surgery to remove a cyst in the middle of his brain and he's left with a side effect where he remembers but with real conviction, events that haven't happened. So, you know, it's really That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and it just follows his, like, struggle to form new memories and how it affects his life and his job. And, you know, in showing that, the book sort of really raises these much larger questions about all the things that make a person, like memory, thought, language, personality, and that they are actually all, like, in fact, bodily processes that are vulnerable to harm. And, um, yeah, Ben's just really kind of passionate about working in this field. And he's got a really innate curiosity about people and what makes them who they are. So, And that really comes across on the page. So, yeah, it's a really, really brilliant read. Could you repeat the title again it's for us? It's called Tell Me the Planets by Tell Ben Me the Planets. Mills. OK. Yeah. Well, I think Caroline will undoubtedly seek that out. But let's move on from Newcastle to Devon and to Jenny. And like a lot of folk, she likes Jojo Moyes. She just uh, finished Me Before You. And you know, she likes a, a story with a good narrative. And she's got a holiday coming up. So it's a summer read for her. So, Will, what are we going to send her off on holiday with? Well, uh, this was such a tempting one because she, she said that she uh, she wanted a few books to go with her. And obviously, it's a challenge um, to, to work out even then what you would send. But I came up with three, if I'm allowed three. Of course, you're allowed um, three. The first is uh, Rose McCauley's Crew Train, which was first published in 1926 and was reprinted last year by Virago. It's been uh, such a great book for us in Grasmere. Our, our book group loved it. Um, it's written in the early 1920s. Uh, it, it has a tale of essentially sort of London and Cornwall of a young girl standing out from the crowd and doing things differently. And Denham, who is the protagonist and her take on the world, is excellent fun to read throughout. It's such a funny, funny book with such moments of compassion to it. And it is a kind of a page turner as well in its own way. So it really resonated with essentially everyone we've recommended it to, I think. And a name in terms of Rose Macaulay that isn't terribly known today, although was, you know, once a a prominent figure. So it's interesting to to see that those books really stand up to rereading too. Yeah, well, well done Virago for kind of bringing that back to life. Uh, And well done you for pushing it out there. Well, my confession was I thought it was going to be a book about uh, trains in crew and it turned out (laughs) the whole thing is nothing to do with that. But there we are. That's that's part of the uh, fun of the book. And we've learned a little bit about your own interests. (laughs) (laughs) Which we'll be avoiding, of course, now. um, (laughs) So Um, that was number one. Uh, number two would be uh, Andrew Miller's Now We Shall Be Entirely Free. Yeah. Um, and in terms of being a really rich historical novel um, of the early 19th century, I tend to describe it to people as a, a bit like Poldark, but with more hint of war crime to it, um, and also with an edge of uh, a Scottish balladry. So it, it's a really interesting Venn diagram of, yeah. of themes um, but Miller's writing is just so wonderful and the characters are so resonant with the reader. I think it's a really uh, great book to, to dip into and, and to take on holiday, certainly. What was the period that that was written about? So the protagonist is a former soldier of the Napoleonic Wars, so it's sort of early 19th century. And it, it 
switches in setting between Somerset and um, the Hebrides. So it's uh, it's one which is really interesting in terms of place too. And number three? Uh, number three would be Thea Lim's Ocean of Minutes, which is published by Quirk, is in paperback now. Um, Thea Lim is a Canadian novelist. This is her debut. Um, and it's for, I would say it's people who are fans of something like The Time Traveller's Wife. It's a real romantic time travel novel um, with, which really describes friendships, um, politics, and it has this curious North American setting which gets to the hub of what an alternative 1993 might look like, uh, which is a strange concept in yeah. itself, but is, a, again, a really good novel and a page-turner, and one I don't think has really got the attention it's deserved in some ways. Well, three good choices there. And, Joe, uh, you're not going to go up to four choices. Now, you? You're not going to make my life really difficult. Uh. I've only got two. Okay. Slightly struggled with it because I think on the one hand, Jenny wanted something light, but then she also said she likes books that make her cry. And I think it's at this time of year that people say they want a light read with no difficult themes. So this is always a bit of a problem because... Uh, generally, you know, the arc of a good story means you have some darkness and some light and jeopardy and then redemption. And I think that a book that is just a light read wouldn't be particularly compelling for that reason. So, yeah, with that in mind, um, I'm going to recommend one that as everyone knows. It's um, Normal People by Sally Rooney. Um, so, yeah, it's been on our top ten every month since it was published. Um, and it's now out in paperback and it's just a complete page turner. And I think as Jenny likes a novel about relationships, she'll really get swept up in this one. It's set in Ireland and it follows two characters, Marianne and Connell, who, although they're from sort of really different class backgrounds, so his mum is her family's cleaner, and they're really drawn to each other and it follows their lives, but most importantly, their sort of inner lives as they grow up and they're constantly sort of circling each other and they're working out who they are. And Sally Rooney is just so brilliant at writing the, the power dynamics between people and how they come to understand themselves. And, you know, these characters, despite like self-sabotage and being sort of painfully in love, it's just a story we can all relate to. And it's just brilliant. When I read The Proof last year, I just <laughs> I stayed up until at two in the morning reading it, which is a real testament to the power of the writing, I think. And, and, and I think Jenny will definitely shed a tear in this one. We love that book. It was British Book Awards Book of the Year. So, you know, we're, we're fully behind that choice. So then what was your other one? I think you're going to do two. It's probably been mentioned on the podcast before, but it is An American Marriage by T.R.E. Jones. Um, I just really love this book. It's such a compelling story. It's about a middle-class black couple in America who are sort of upwardly mobile. She's an artist. He's got a good job. They've been married for a year, and they're about to start. Um, they're sort of talking about starting a family. But then suddenly Roy, the husband, gets wrongfully convicted for a crime he didn't commit and is sentenced to 12 years in prison. But the book isn't so much about the miscarriage of justice, although it does sort of tell that story, but it's really a nuanced read. It's very subtly about the repercussions of the sentence on their relationship, which sort of makes it totally fascinating. And it looks at gender roles, it looks at cultural expectations and what it means to be a husband, um, what it means to be a man when you have no freedom or agency. And, um, yeah, the first part is told through the letters they write to each other over the years. And then there are alternate chapters. So you get their different experience of the same events. So it's just a really clever book. And it's about much more than you expect it to be about. And it's, it was also the winner of the Women's Prize this year. Of course year. it was, yeah. Very good choice. 
And then we've got one final reader, who's Ian, uh, who's a civil servant in London. I'm probably going to just make you um, have only one choice this time, so I'm just kind of preparing you for that. Now, the last book he read, which he enjoyed, was Mick Heron's new Jackson Lamb thriller, which um, our Tom Tivenon put me on to Mick Heron. I think he's great, and he likes intelligent thrillers and people like uh, Le Carre. But what actually he wants us to help him choose is um, vegetarian cookbooks because he's just turned veggie. He likes some ideas on that. So there you go. I thought it was all going to be about spy thrillers, but it ain't. It's veggie cookbooks. So, Will, have you got a nice one, the kind of vegetarian food of Grassmere or something like that? Sort of a, a thrilling cookbook. I came up with two, but I'm going to go with the one I think would probably be less likely to be recommended. So let's hope this is the case. Nigel Slater's new Green Feast. Spring summer is just out at the moment, um, and it's very much about seasonal veg and about what you'll see around you. It's so readable, it's clear, it's very much everyday recipes that's that's being um, shared with you. It's a really neat, compact cookbook to have in the kitchen too. It's I think Fourth Estate have really thought about the design of it too. So actually, as an object cookbook, it's a brilliant thing to have around. It's portable. And it's just very tactile, yeah. which is a strange thing to prioritise in the kitchen. No, but it is. I think a lot of Slater's books are really beautifully produced. So, yeah. And the companion volume comes out in the autumn. So there's a second one coming there with autumn, winter and October. Oh, well, you kind of sneakily got two in you know, <laughs> oh, sorry, by yeah, default sorry. there. <laughs> uh, that's not reasonable at all. Joe. Yeah, I was going to suggest Anna Jones, A Modern Way to Cook. Yeah. She, Anna lives in Hackney, and I think she worked for Jamie Oliver before she started writing cookery books herself. It was just such a great book. Um, a really good friend gave it to me, and I just now recommend it to everyone in the shop, having used it quite a lot myself. It's just not branded as a vegetarian cookbook, so it just sort of happens to not have any meat in it. So it feels really feels like none of the recipes lack anything. It's like each recipe is just really full of flavour. And it includes chapters like Ready in 20, On the Table in Half an Hour. There are loads of um, pictures as well that make you really hungry just looking at them. And, um, yeah, my tip for the first recipe to try is one which is the kale, tomato and lemon magic one-pot spaghetti. Um, It's just such a good recipe because it's really easy and quick, but the sauce is magically made as it cooks in the pot. And so, yeah, it's just really brilliant and, and really tasty. Sounds absolutely brilliant. I'm going to throw one in because it'd be rude not to, um, which was the uh, the British Book of the Year Award for uh, Nonfiction and the Bosch Vegan Cookbook, which I think is great. They tell a great story there. Before you leave us, what about one book from each of you, which is a book that you know maybe the shop is selling really well or it's a personal favourite you try and kind of get all your customers to take home with them? But Will, have you got one that you really want to sort of champion? Yeah, uh, recently I've really been loving uh, John Day's Homing on Pigeons Dwelling and Why We Return, uh, which is published by John Murray. This is sounding slightly akin to your Railways in Crew suggestion. So, <laughs> yeah, <get> it. <laughs> this one is squarely squarely on pigeons, but yeah. at the same time, um, it's a it's a kind of personal story by a disillusioned academic uh, who has just started a new family and begun to think about what connects him to his child. So he begins to think about his own childhood love of looking after an ailing pigeon. <laughs> so so this kind of prompts him to think more about the place of pigeons and maybe about being able to look after pigeons. And it, and it has this really wonderful sort of non-fiction memoir quality about it, where it, it veers between the personal story of a man in his mid-30s who's just taken up essentially pigeon fancying in some fashion, with um, accounts of why pigeons have become 
uh, important to us through the centuries. So there's, there's all kinds of odd anecdotes from uh, dipping into Arthur Ransom to dipping into uh, their use in warfare or their, their function in terms of photography and aerial photography. There are great illustrations of little pigeons with little harnesses on um, with cameras fixed on them midway through to discuss sort of their um, necessity in terms of understanding the landscape and how important they've been to us. And I, as with the trains anecdote, I am slightly biased because I did have a sideways academic interest in the use of pigeons in books. That is one of the weirder dissertation titles I've ever heard. <laughs> well, many novels, they use pigeons for characters to just look out a window and have deep thoughts. And I thought pigeons are getting a bit of a raw deal. You know, people, are, people are just using them all of the time for their own profound thoughts. So this is a book which is entirely about pigeons. And I think the cover blurbs really point to how it persuades people who purport to not like pigeons at all to come out of this book loving pigeons and loving their their role in the world so um, if it can do something for the humble street pigeon then i hope it it should <laughs> well i'm going to stop you there and uh, but i am now going to announce the launch of a spin-off podcast the pigeon podcast <laughs> <laughs> featuring Zamri books so joe my recommendation is basically a book that was published in 1979 but the author is experiencing a real surge in popularity in the last few years, um, and it's Kindred by Octavia Butler. And so Octavia Butler was an award-winning female African-American science fiction writer, and she was writing mainly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but her books are just so timeless. And this book sort of really defies the norms of the sci-fi genre, and it explores themes of race and power and gender and class, so it feels really modern. And in this book, the main character is Dana. She's a sort of strong, believable black woman who travels back in time to save her ancestor, who happens to be a white slave owner. And she discovers that her mission is to sort of save the life of this man who will rape her great-grandmother. So otherwise she will cease to exist. So that's the plot. But the plot device of time travel is just so clever because... As she swings between centuries, we can't help but sort of feel real empathy um, because in her normal life she's safe, she has enough food, she lives in a flat with her boyfriend, but then she's suddenly pulled back in time and she instantly loses all her rights as a human being because without papers from a slave owner her existence is illegal and she's regularly subject to violence. So there's a big comment here about injustice and the prejudice that the author has experienced as a black person and as a woman. But, um, yeah, it was just such a roller coaster of a read. It felt quite visual. The writing is so good that I can actually still picture some scenes from it. And um, Octavia Butler, just in general, it really explores some unusual themes in her writing, such as empathy, love as political resistance, and adapting to change. So she was really ahead of her time, I think, and, and it's a really brilliant book. And I think it's currently the only one of her books in print in the UK at the moment, but I think Headliner reissuing two more in August. And those are called The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents. So, um, yeah, we're really looking forward to those ones. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, that sounds incredibly powerful and great to have a sort of a new name that I have never come across at all. No, me neither. But I tell you, Joe, you've sold that yeah, book to two, me. Two, <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. It sounds amazing. Um, so, listen, you two could clearly talk about books all day, but I think we better stop so you can kind of get back to the day job. Um, those books aren't going to sell themselves. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your time on the Bookseller Podcast and um, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. So bye. Thanks. Bye. bye. So there you go, folks. Hackney to Grasmere. 
good indies are all over the country. Thanks to Joe and Will, who are now added to our list of brilliant indies who've been on the podcast. And if you're near either of them, just go in and ask for ideas. I think you'll get plenty from the sound of that. Before we leave Bookshops, Cathy, I just wanted to give a big shout-out to a new indie. Just round the corner from my mates Tom and Donna up in Edinburgh, the Portobello Bookshop opens, I think, on the 24th of July. I may not have got that right, but um, I've seen the photos. It's looking fantastic, so... Best of luck to them. Another new indie arriving. Fantastic. Oh, that's great, isn't it? And um, weren't they wonderful, oh, Will and Joe? Great. I did a lovely event at Pages of Hackney. I love it. And um, I've never been to Will's shop, but I had a conversation with him over breakfast after the BA conference last year, the Booksellers Association conference, and we were talking about Anne of Green Gables, which he knew a lot about because he'd studied Canadian literature. And the conversation was so good that I completely lost track of time and very nearly missed my flight. <laughs> So just the thought you can wander into either of their shops and have a conversation with either of them seems pretty good to me. Yeah, too right. So thank you very much. That's it for now. Our next podcast will be in August. Um, Thanks to the book doctors for their picks. Thanks also to the readers who sent in their questions. If you'd like to be one of our patients, um, please do email podcast at thebookseller.com and that comes straight to me and I will be delighted to hear from you. If you'd like to talk to us about anything else, you can also tweet us at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe, or you can listen to us at thebookseller.com. And now we're going to play out with an extract from The Excellent Expectation by Anna Hope, read by Vinette Robinson. And that will end the eighth edition of The Bookseller podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. They would like to pause time, just here, just now, in this park, this gorgeous afternoon light. They would like the house prices to remain affordable. They would like to smoke cigarettes and drink wine as though they are still young and they don't make any difference. They would like to burrow down here, in the beauty of this warm May afternoon. They live in the best house, on the best park, in the best part of the best city on the planet. Much of their lives is still before them. They have made mistakes, but they are not fatal. They are no longer young, but they do not feel old. Life is still malleable and full of potential. The openings to the roads not taken have not yet sealed up. They still have time to become who they are going to be. Thank you.